From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Office Hours. I'm Tamara Supper. Today, our focus is on the First Amendment. There is a sense among many that our freedom of speech and freedom of press are facing unprecedented challenges. Right now, there are major First Amendment issues making their way through the courts, and their resolution by the Supreme Court could change long-standing principles. To help us understand these issues and what's at stake, I'm joined by Stuart Broughton. He is a First Amendment scholar and an advocate with wide-ranging expertise in media law. Stuart Broughton, thank you so much for joining me on Office Hours. It's great to be here, Tabar. So I'm really excited to have you because you've just published this new book. It's called The First Amendment Lives On. And in it, you speak with seven of the top First Amendment advocates and scholars of our time, amongst them Jeffrey Stone, Floyd Abrams, Nadine Strassen, people who've led the ACLU and many others who've argued seminal cases, First Amendment cases before the Supreme Court. So before we get to the three issues that we're going to be discussing today, content moderation by social media companies, libel law uh, as it's raised in the context of Dominion's lawsuit, and the right to record police activity, I, I do want to start with your book and lay the foundation for these cases that we're going to discuss. The title. Let's start with that. First Amendment lives on. How did you come up with that title? Why lives on? Well, first of all, it's intended to be a hopeful title because we are living in somewhat precarious times now, uh, both for democratic institutions and, of course, in terms of uh, free speech and free press. And so one of the notions was to give people a sense, which was not just a blind sense, but it was really sense based on the deep conversations I had with the individuals that I spoke with. I think all of them, in the end, had a a sense of optimism. I wouldn't want to call it blind optimism. I think everyone is sober about where we are today. But in terms of understanding how core the First Amendment is to the future of democracy and to sustaining our democracy, and at the end of the day, we call it the First Amendment because it is the bedrock of so much of our democratic process. Why don't we go to the text of the First Amendment? So it's 45 words and it contains six principles. And there's something about the structure, the order in which they appear that's important. Talk about that. Well, I had a great conversation with Bert Newborn, who was the founding director of the Brennan Center at NYU Law School and uh, still continues to teach there. Uh, And so Bert has this wonderful way of thinking about the First Amendment, uh, which he calls Madison's music. And the idea to Burt was that James Madison, uh, when he was working on the Federalist Papers and developing the concept of the First Amendment, that it was not a random order of how the First Amendment was constructed. It was a little bit like a musical symphony, and it was intended to build each of the elements upon each other. So we start out with the the innermost thinking and consciousness of people, which often has some relationship to spirituality. And so the notion there was that government would not, first of all, establish a religion, a particular religion, and it would not interfere with people's ability to essentially explore their spirituality, 
whether it was through a, a God or not believing in a God. And so that's the other notion of the religion aspects of the First Amendment. Government has no role in establishing religion or in essentially dealing with the free exercise of religious practice. Any type of religious practice will be acceptable. And then from that inner notion, Bert in Madison's music has the idea that we need to then begin to express ourselves. And how do we express ourselves? We speak. And so this is the notion of freedom of speech, which is the second idea in the First Amendment. And then, of course, speaking has a certain power, but what really can make speech even more powerful as a social connector is the fact that it can be amplified. And who amplifies it? The press. And so that's the third idea, that we should have no restrictions on freedom of the press, because freedom of the press plays a very distinct role in our ability to think and speak. Uh, and then, of course, as we gather ideas and begin to communicate with each other, then people begin to assemble and meet and talk about those ideas. And so that raises the notion of freedom of assembly. And of course, assembly is not the last part of the First Amendment. It's this notion of petitioning the government for grievances. And basically, that means we act. We don't just speak. We don't just assemble. But we then have the ability, we have the power to go to the government and say, we disagree with what you're doing, or we would like to support what you're doing. And so if you look at it within the context of that sequence, it's a very interesting metaphor for how the First Amendment was constructed. So Bart Newborn, the former national legal director of ACLU, tells you, quote, the First Amendment right to vote is waiting to be discovered, hiding in plain sight right there in the sixth idea, the petition clause. What does he mean? What is he talking about? And can you see the Supreme Court adopting the right to vote through the First Amendment? Well, I found it to be a really interesting idea. And if you follow the logic that Bert lays out in the book and in his own book, Madison's Music, uh, action is not enough. The idea of petitioning the government for grievances. So right now, of course, we have the referenda process. People can essentially compile a petition. And of course, if that meets the requirements of a referendum, where does it go? It goes to the ballot box. And that means that the logical next step of the final part of the First Amendment, which is the petitioning the government, I think Bert would argue, and perhaps I would agree, that implicit in that is not just petitioning, but if you're going to bring something to a referendum or to the ballot box, you then have to have the ability to vote. Uh, and Bert mentioned that he has discussed this with several Supreme Court justices. He didn't name them, but he said that uh, at least two or three were very interested in this notion. I'm not sure that this will ever wind up in terms of a Supreme Court decision, but like a lot of ideas, they start off as theoretical ideas, they work their way up into jurisprudence, and eventually a case is presented with at the Supreme Court where you can apply that. So in terms of 
near term, no, I don't expect this to be read into the First Amendment. And I think you could say that with the originalist movement now, it probably would not be read into it because the originalists would say, if you didn't put it in the language of the First Amendment when it was drafted, it shouldn't be there at all. Do you think if it were adopted, it would address some of the concerns people have about voting rights right now? I think it might. And that also obviously raises issues because the Supreme Court has really been narrowing the scope of voting rights. And that would probably make it highly unlikely that they would expand it by this interpretation of the First Amendment. What has been the historical trajectory of the First Amendment's interpretation by the Supreme Court? Well, we've had a long history of the First Amendment, but we have not had a very long history in terms of what we might call the jurisprudence of the First Amendment. So up until the early part of of the 20th century, courts really were not deciding cases based on the First Amendment. And in particular, the Supreme Court had not begun to develop a thinking about the First Amendment. Uh, Unfortunately, once they began to do that, it was a relatively restricted view of the First Amendment. We had the Alien and Sedition Act, which was an act passed during World War II, which essentially restricted speech that might affect the government's involvement in World War II. And the Supreme Court upheld the Alien and Sedition Act, uh, even though, as we now understand it, that was a clear conflict with the First Amendment. What happened is that we had a series of extraordinary dissenting opinions by two Supreme Court justices, Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis, and at the lower court level, Learned Hand. And those three were really the people, the judges who developed a jurisprudence or began to get the court to think about how to develop a line of cases and a line of thinking about the First Amendment. And as that became the case, ultimately we saw that the dissent became the majority view of the court. And so we had this quite dramatic shift, particularly in the middle part of the 20th century, and of course, continuing into the 21st century, where we have a Supreme Court that now has established precedents in the First Amendment area. And of course, we've seen a widening during this period of First Amendment protections over time. So this has been a major development, uh, obviously, in American law and in the way that the Supreme Court views the First Amendment. What was happening that caused the shift to happen towards the Brandeis and Holmes view on the First Amendment? Well, I think the court had uh, cases that were put in front of them that caused them to pause and think, and particularly because so much of the court, at least historically, has been this notion of stare decisis. The notion is how do you build up a series of cases that the Supreme Court can rely on? Let me give you a quick example. So the area of of obscenity is one that the Supreme Court never really understood in a way that it could develop a coherent jurisprudence. And so from about 1957 to 1973, about a quarter of a century, we had the Supreme Court testing out new notions of obscenity. And of course, ultimately, we wound up with the broadest concept, the Miller Doctrine, which essentially 
has mooted most of what would have been considered obscene in most of the 20th century. And so that was an example where the court had to sort of internally test its ideas. Of course, we have that famous Potter Stewart quote, which maybe expresses the confusion and the exasperation better than anything else, which is obscenity is something that you know when you see it. A lot of the obscenity cases uh, happened during the period where John Marshall Harlan II was on the Supreme Court. What was not very well known was that Justice Harlan was blind. And Justice Harlan was a critical justice in terms of helping to change thinking on obscenity law. And one of the most uncomfortable aspects of the Supreme Court clerks that he had is that they needed to watch all of the movies and other items that were being brought to the court on the basis of obscenity and then come in and narrate that to Justice Harlan. And so literally we had blind justice in the actual sense uh, deciding a number of these cases. And what was interesting is that Harlan, who was generally a conservative Wall Street lawyer, came to around to the concept that obscenity really needed to be broadened and reconciled with the First Amendment. And of course, he wrote the famous uh, decision in Cone versus California, where essentially someone walked into a state office building with a fuck the draft t-shirt, and that was not viewed to be obscene. And what's the test now for obscenity? It's essentially something that conforms to community standards and has some socially redeeming value. And you can imagine that virtually anything that we are dealing with today conforms to, to community standards, because obviously the community standards we have now are the standards of the internet. And in terms of socially redeeming value, we have such a, a diverse population in society that virtually anything can be said to have a socially redeeming value. Coming back to today, Floyd Abrams tells you that, quote, the current Supreme Court is a very pro-First Amendment court. Do, do you agree with that assessment? And how have the justices shown that they're pro-First Amendment? Well, obviously, Floyd was the beneficiary when he and Alex Bickle argued the Pentagon Papers case. And that was a landmark case, essentially, where the government tried to restrict the New York Times from publishing the Pentagon Papers on the basis of national security. And the court ultimately decided that the government did not make its case and that the presumption should be that there would be no prior restraint. So, so clearly that case, which was decided 50 years ago, but certainly is part of the contemporary Supreme Court, I think would be a, a landmark. Times versus Sullivan is another, which was decided in the 1960s that essentially raised the bar of how defamation cases would be decided so that if you were a public figure, you would have to show what was called actual malice. And that standard means that you need to know that something is false or you need to have a reckless disregard for whether it's true or false. 
And that, that really created a national standard and a much higher bar because before that, we had cases all across the country based on local defamation laws where local public officials were essentially suing local media companies and doing that on the basis of defamation without this actual malice standard. So those would be two examples. And the third example, obviously, is the commercial speech area where once upon a time, there was this division between political speech, which was considered protected by the First Amendment, and commercial speech, which was considered part of commerce and not really part of the First Amendment. So certainly since the late 1960s, early 1970s, we've seen a series of cases that essentially have brought commercial speech under the umbrella of the First Amendment. So those would be three examples. Now, now what's interesting is what do we consider the contemporary Supreme Court? And certainly in the past year or so, we have a very, very different Supreme Court than we had uh, even five or 10 years ago. And so uh, it would be interesting if I went back and had the same conversation with Floyd, whether or not he would evaluate what he said in the context of what's happening today. Let's turn to the content moderation by social media companies. This news has been making headlines for the last couple of weeks or so. Florida and Texas, conservative politicians in those states passed what they're calling anti-censorship laws that would have the result of taking away editorial control from social media companies. What do these laws say, SB 7072 in Florida and Texas's HB 20? Well, they, they vary a little bit, but I think broadly you can put the two together. And when we talk about whether or not this will be presented to the Supreme Court, which I think it will, I think those two laws and those two cases will be consolidated. But uh, essentially, they would prohibit social media platforms, and they do that on the basis of the size of the platform. So in Texas, for example, there's a threshold of 50 million users that you have to meet. And it means that a social media platform would lose the discretion to ban or to uh, restrict anyone based on their political viewpoint. And in the Florida case, it's a little more narrow because it deals with political candidates, not any citizen who had a political viewpoint. So the, the Texas law is a little broader than the Florida law, but the basic idea there is to restrict privately held companies. This would be Facebook and uh, YouTube and a variety of other social media platforms, which of course are not the government. And so the question is, does the First Amendment apply in that context? Because the government is essentially prohibiting speech of private actors. And the editorial discretion in the social media world, we've come to know as content moderation. But in some respects, it's not all that different if you think of a, a newspaper or broadcast station, which is deciding who is going to be put on the air or in the newspaper and who is not. And what social media companies do, obviously, is they also make decisions. So 
we've seen in recent years, and particularly with Twitter and the ban on former President Trump, that particular politicians or particular political viewpoints have been excluded by these companies in the name of content moderation. And that that's the reason why this has become such a political hot potato, because certainly the political establishment in Texas and Florida believe that that constitutes some level of cens- censorship of conservative political viewpoints. And the only way to prevent that is to have a law passed, which would impose fines on these social media companies if they, in fact, prohibited either political candidates or political viewpoints from being on that social media platform. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the Texas law. The Eleventh Circuit said that the Florida law did not pass constitutional muster. Almost everyone, all the legal analysts, at least on Twitter, that I saw called the Fifth Circuit decision by Judge Oldham legally bonkers, incoherent. What made this decision so far afield from what you might expect? Well, it doesn't really conform with all of the precedents that we know in terms of what the Supreme Court has decided. And it almost flips the issue on its head, uh, because what Judge Oldham says there is that uh, the law does not chill speech, it chills censorship. And that seems to be sort of a puzzling notion, because essentially it is chilling editorial control, known as content moderation, from private actors by virtue of having the government step in and say, we will be the ultimate arbiter of this and we will prohibit you from exercising that discretion. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense in terms of what we understand about the First Amendment and certainly the prior cases that have you know, been decided certainly over the past 20 or 30 years. So now we have a circuit split, right? And most likely, as you said, this, these cases will be consolidated and the justices will hear them. How do you think the Supreme Court will uh, rule in these cases? I think we have to go back to the politics of today's court. And I think we're certainly in a 6-3 environment now. And even if Chief Justice Roberts aligns with Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor and of course, uh, new Justice Jackson, we have the Barrett, Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Alito faction. And we've seen the power of that. And often, as we saw in the Dobbs case, Justice Roberts will go along with that. He may have some either concurrence, which modifies it. But ultimately, these cases may be decided based on that 6-3 alliance, which again could be switched to 5-4, but at the end of the day, the Barrett-Thomas-Gorsuch-Kavanaugh and Alito alliance essentially, uh, I think, tips the balance in many ways. And so uh, I, I think many people are sort of puzzled as to whether or not the court will look to the prior precedents and essentially follow those precedents, or as we've seen particularly with uh, Justice Thomas, for example, uh, a real sense of skepticism and maybe dissatisfaction with the way that social media companies have developed 
and a notion that maybe they are too powerful and there has to be some check and balance with government involved here. What would be the legal justification for sort of taking away this uh, editorial control from social media companies? And would it be consistent, for example, with Citizens United? Well, that's an interesting question. It probably would not be consistent with Citizens United. But again, uh, certainly what we saw in the Dobbs case is that uh, at least today's Supreme Court alliance is not necessarily looking at precedent, stare decisis, consistency. They're, they're willing to sort of sit down with a blank piece of paper and write a new rationale and say this is now going to be the law going forward. You know, it's very puzzling in terms of how they would be able to write an opinion based on what we know about traditional jurisprudence, which is operating on prior precedent and stare decisis. There is no line of cases that essentially would allow that. But again, we may be in an entirely new environment. To what extent do you think is the common carrier and places of public accommodation doctrines applicable here? Meaning, for example, phone companies or train companies uh, hold themselves out to the public as offering a certain service, and therefore they're subject to regulations that say basically you cannot exclude certain individuals. Uh, What do you make of that argument? as far as applying that doctrine to um, social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, others that do have large market dominance? Well, this is an argument that that Justice Thomas has raised in some dissents, and that might be a rationale that would be presented. But common carriage, typically, that whole concept, typically is one that's developed by Congress. So Congress will specify For example, in the old days, it was considered uh, trucking companies were common carriers. That was part of the Interstate Commerce Act. So it it would really be a, a great leap of judicial activism for the court to essentially characterize any of these social media companies as common carriers when Congress has never done that. And in some cases, Congress has explicitly said Comparable type services are not common carriers. So, for example, when Congress amended the Communications Act to cover cable television, it had a provision that said cable television shall not be treated as a common carrier. And if Congress can put that language in and hasn't done so for social media companies, I think it goes back to this notion that it's a legislative function, not a judicial function. Let's talk about the harm here. These laws have been challenged by lobbies that represent uh, groups of social media companies. What's the harm? What's the problem with complying with these laws? Well, it depends on how these companies view themselves and how we view these companies. So, uh, for example, going back to a traditional media company, which has editorial discretion. Under the First Amendment, would we prohibit, for example, the New York Times from making editorial decisions about political viewpoints or political candidates that are being covered? Uh, No, of course we wouldn't. And of course, we have Supreme Court precedents in those areas. There's a 
famous case in the 1960s called CBS versus DNC. And that's where the Democratic National Committee asked CBS or said, we want to buy specific political advertising on the CBS television network. And CBS said no. And the DNC brought CBS to court. Ultimately, that was decided by the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said CBS, under the First Amendment, has no obligation to carry the DNC's political ads. It can make editorial decisions. So I think the social media companies would say, we are just like that too. Why should we have a different obligation under the First Amendment than, for example, broadcasters or newspapers? The reality is that the social media companies remove millions of posts every day, everything from posts by ISIS that try to recruit terrorists to racist comments to people egging on others to commit suicide, some really awful stuff. What's likely to happen outside of the courts? How are these companies going to comply with this law in Texas now that it's been upheld and Supreme Court has yet to rule on it? Well, they they could do a variety of things. Obviously, they're going to vigorously contest this. And uh, right now, in fact, they have already applied for a stay of the Fifth Circuit decision, which is interesting is that is an uncontested stay because Texas is not opposing it. So it's highly likely that that law will not take effect unless and until the Supreme Court decides to take the case and decide in favor of Texas. So we we won't really know how this works in practice until ultimately the Supreme Court decides. But social media companies could do a variety of things if they needed to comply. One is they could do pop-ups. So anytime something came where they essentially were forced to carry that particular content, they could say in a pop-up, we under the law must carry this and we want to warn you, for example, that this is a terrorist or a hate speech or uh, some sort of vile communication, essentially separating themselves and showing that the law is requiring them to do that. So that's one thing. They could do geo-blocking, which is a common method. They essentially can create a zone where Texas or Florida are not going to have the full access of the internet. And of course, that will create an enormous political firestorm in those states, which will not want to be second-class citizens in social media. And so you might see that as the beginning of the end of those laws, because I think there would be just an enormous blowback politically. And then the third, of course, is they could just flood the zone. They could just say, yes, we are going to open the floodgates exactly as is required by the law. And again, that may create the same level of political blowback because all of a sudden you might have a Facebook or YouTube flooded with the types of really offensive social media content that you alluded to. And I think, again, people might go back and say to the legislature, this is something that we didn't sign up for. 
Another point of analysis here is Section 230 of Communications Decency Act. And while perhaps it hasn't played a huge role in this case, today, October 3rd, we learned that the Supreme Court would weigh in on Section 230 and two separate cases that are now before it. So tell us what Section 230 does and its relevance to this issue. Well, Section 230 was, as you said, part of the Communications Decency Act. Essentially, it says that social media platforms have been immunized from liability because essentially they are conduits for content. As we know, there are millions and millions of social media posts every day. And so Congress had this notion that these social media platforms should not have any legal liability for essentially reviewing the content as it's uploaded and downloaded and wrote this specific provision, Section 230, into the law. Now, of course, in today's times, that has created a lot of controversy, as you mentioned, in terms of the the flood of what we might call bad content that is flowing on the internet. And there are people who say, I want to sue for defamation. I want to sue for intentional affliction of emotional distress. But today, under Section 230, Congress has said, no, you're not allowed to do that. So that really creates this environment, I think, on both sides of the political spectrum as to whether or not Section 230 should remain as that wall against legal liability or whether essentially it should be lowered. There should be some exceptions that are made. Now, uh, there's been a lot of discussion whether or not Congress will modify Section 230. And in fact, during the last presidential campaign, both Biden and Trump indicated that they were in favor of some reform of Section 230. And we've seen both sides of the political aisle, some movement in that area. But I I think it's going to be very difficult for Congress to actually come up with a new legislative scheme. And so here's where the court becomes very important. And as you indicated, the court now has decided to take two cases dealing with Section 230, uh, one against YouTube, one against Twitter. YouTube has algorithms which have been used by terrorists, and one of those terrorist groups wound up killing someone. And when that family sued YouTube, YouTube said, we have immunity under Section 230. We also had a case dealing with Twitter and the Anti-Terrorism Act, which Congress passed, which essentially says you cannot aid or abet terrorist activity. And of course, you have social media posts that do that. Question is, should Twitter be liable under Section 230 today? No. But if the court decides that it should carve out an exception there, it can do so. And and we've seen some erosion or some beginning of the carve out, certainly in the area, for example, of child pornography. Clearly, companies can now be held liable. Congress went back and revised Section 230 to put in a provision 
to create liability for social media companies in terms of transmitting child pornography. So it it is possible. The other thing we haven't discussed, which is really a wild card here, are the states. So there are now over 100 legislative bills throughout the United States dealing with content moderation. So individual states, not just Texas, not just Florida, are now stepping into this. And of course, it's highly unusual because as we know, none of these social media companies operate on a state-by-state basis. They're all federal or clearly international. And so we're, we're creating a very balkanized view of social media where each state essentially can create its own rules for social media. I mean, California, which obviously has entirely different political flavor than Texas or Florida, Governor Newsom has just signed into law something called AB 5871. And and that law will require social media companies to report on a semi-annual basis their content moderation policies with respect to hate speech, disinformation, and extremism. And that's a case to watch because I would suspect that will be challenged as well because, again, government is coming in and telling social media companies, we are going to oversee your editorial discretion. And by requiring them to report to government on a semi-annual basis, that might be considered undermining the First Amendment principle of free speech and free press. Sounds like we're going to see some major changes in Silicon Valley in the next few years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's really uh, sort of an all-front war here. Some of it is legislative. Some of it is federal. Some of it's state. Some of it's the lower courts. Some of it's the Supreme Court. Literally, I think, as I mentioned, we developed a jurisprudence of the First Amendment over the past hundred years. I think in the next 10, 15, 20 years, we will be developing a jurisprudence of social media. Let's talk about defamation law. Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox News, OAN, various individuals, including Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, for claiming that essentially Dominion engaged in a vote rigging scheme to get Biden elected and to ensure that Trump loses. The New York Times described the Dominion lawsuit against Fox as potentially, quote, one of the most consequential First Amendment cases in a generation. What makes it so? Well, I'm not sure I would agree, although I think it's consequential, obviously, because of the the dollar figures involved here. And there are really parallel cases because another company called Smartmatic, which makes voting machines, has also sued many of those same parties on the same ground of being defamed. What's interesting here is the application of the Times versus Sullivan standard that I talked about before in defamation, which has existed since 1964, which essentially says that the test here would be actual malice, meaning that Fox would have had to know this was false or it would have to recklessly disregard 
whether or not it was true or false. And Fox would say, maybe this is not even news. Maybe this is opinion. How can something like that be considered an opinion, right? To me, it sounds like a fact. Like, either Dominion rigged the vote through something having to do with the machines it manufactured, or it didn't. In the legal world, right, how do we distinguish what is a fact and what is an opinion? Well, it's a almost an existential question, particularly in the world of social media, because there's this new expression that a lot of people use, which is, I heard. So people say, I saw something on the internet. I read something about it. And for example, Mike Lindell, he argues that, yes, I, I actually believed all of what I was telling you. There was nothing false about my belief. Obviously, the underlying facts of his belief may not have any basis in reality, but he's saying essentially he has the right to say that as an opinion. And Fox would say they have the right to put Mike Lindell on the air to express that opinion. And they will point that during some of the broadcasts, they will indicate to viewers, we have not verified this. Uh, This is essentially something that's being talked about. And they, you know, they are very careful in the way they craft this. Clearly, they do this with their legal staff, but they do it in a way that they won't essentially be open to defamation claims. Is there no duty to verify, legally speaking? Well, it's, it's uh, no. I mean, the difficulty now in social media is that, I mean, once upon a time, again, in those old days, we had all of our facts or our news, which was filtered through established organizations, which had principles, journalistic principles that people essentially knew you had to verify information. You had to get it from a number of sources. So this is all part of what we would call journalistic practice. That's not the world that we live in today, because obviously in social media, even if someone reads a news article, they may pass it on to someone else on social media with their own comment about it. And ultimately, the third person passes on the comment, but not the original article. So it's really, really difficult to go back to the days of having the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post as the the filters for all of that. I read that Dominion conceded that it was a public figure. Should it have? To me, it sounds like no one knew what Dominion was until these allegations were made. Uh, Yeah, that's really interesting because as you No, in the Times versus Sullivan case, that dealt with public figures being employees or official figures of government. And that has been expanded over the years to now cover a much broader category. So celebrities, obviously, would be considered public figures. And if you just continue that strand of analysis, virtually anyone on any day can become a public figure if they do something that goes viral. And and so in, ter- in terms of Dominion, yes, Dominion typically would not be considered a public figure, 
But of course, once Dominion goes viral, once people begin to talk about Dominion, it, it sort of creates a, a new reality about that company. How vulnerable do you think the actual malice test is to being overturned? Well, again, we're in this new world of the Supreme Court where we have essentially some justices who have assumed the role of provocateurs. And we certainly see that Justice Thomas is now doing that and on a relatively consistent basis. Again, going back to Dobbs, the abortion case, I mean, he suggested a number of things not related to abortion, but related to rights of privacy and marital contraception and same-sex marriage, a variety of things which he might want to include in his reasoning. And I think we've seen that a little bit with, with Gorsuch. So we now have a couple of justices, and probably Alita would be in that category as well, who like to sort of throw these new ideas in into the mix. Going back to that early part of the 20th century, once upon a time we had people like Oliver Wendell Holmes or Louis Brandeis who played that role. And ultimately, over a number of years, they brought the other justices along with them. Uh, I mean, what's interesting here, given this 6-3 alignment, is when you have a Thomas or Alito or Thomas or uh, Gorsuch, they may have the capability to bring Barrett and you know the other of the six three to their uh, you know their side, and and that could essentially change the law. So I guess the short answer is no. I don't suspect in the immediate future, meeting the next five or so years that there will be any fundamental change in the actual malice standard other times versus Sullivan. When we're talking about freedom of speech, we're normally thinking about the speaker, right? To what extent should we consider the rights and dignity of, of the listener? Well, the Supreme Court has dealt with this before, and there was a case called the Red Lion case back in the 1960s. Once upon a time, the FCC had something called the Fairness Doctrine. And the Fairness Doctrine required that broadcasters essentially proactively cover issues of public importance. And whenever they did so, they would have to have contrasting viewpoints on those public issues. And that was a regulation that the FCC promulgated, and that was challenged at the Supreme Court as a violation of the First Amendment. And the Supreme Court unanimously said no, that in fact, the interests are not just of the speaker, not just of the broadcaster, the interests are also of the listeners. And the listeners need to have exposure to these contrasting and diverse viewpoints. That's part of the First Amendment too. So that, that's the only time that the Supreme Court has really spoken to this concept. What's very interesting is that the Supreme Court did not say that was a mandate under the First Amendment. They basically said it was allowable under the First Amendment. And so what we saw in 1987 
during the Reagan administration, the FCC abolished the fairness doctrine. And so we don't have that situation as we had before it was abolished, where we had the rights of the listeners being protected in a similar way to the rights of the speakers. The other interesting First Amendment case going on right now comes out of Arizona. So Arizona passed a law that says you cannot record any police activity within eight feet of it if you are given a warning by the police officer. Now, ACLU and some news organizations challenged the law and As of today, the judge issued a preliminary injunction that temporarily blocks the law's enforcement. What makes this a First Amendment case? What rights do we have to record the police? Well, this is freedom of the press. So if you imagine, again, the good old days, or at least the old days, where we had an established press, we had people who would go to an event It might be a criminal event where the police were involved and they would have a press pass and the police would set up a barrier. But the people who were representing the press would be able essentially to go to the front of the line to see what was going on. And reporters could write about it. But of course, you had news photographers who could take pictures. They couldn't go past that barrier. That's never, never been the case. So now in our new world, everyone seems to be a journalist. We all are now carrying around our miniature newsrooms in our smartphones. And so when an event happens, people pull out their phones and begin to record that event simultaneous to the police acting in real time. And so we have this conflict or this potential conflict between this notion of police protection and public safety, let the police do their job, and this notion of the free press, having the public see how the police are doing their job. And obviously, we've seen a number of situations of police misconduct or negligence, and we would have not known about that, but for the fact that there were people at the event who were able to record it. Some of them may be from news organizations, but many times these are people who are just pulling out their smartphones and shooting the video. And of course, now we also have the phenomenon of body cams because police agencies now say, we we don't want to be accused of something that we didn't do. And so we want to document this while it's taking place. Of course, a body cam has a restricted view of the event. And so one argument for having other people recorded is it would allow us to see a number of different angles and a number of different things that are happening during the same event. We've seen loads of videos where something looks like something if you look from a particular angle, but when you essentially have many different angles, the entire perception changes. One of the, again, existential issues to deal with here is what constitutes the press. Is it an institutional press or is it a functional press? Meaning, is it the notion that you can amplify what's going on by using different technologies 
like smartphones. To what extent do you think it will matter legally whether the person doing the recording is formally a journalist or just a passerby who whips out his or her phone and starts recording what they see? Well, I think I think it may be difficult to uh, continue to draw those lines, particularly because if you watch a regular local television station, often during the broadcast, they will say, if you see something, please upload your video to us. And so a lot of video that is now being broadcast by traditional journalistic organizations is not generated by those organizations. It's generated by everyone else with a smartphone. I mean, we, we've just seen Hurricane Ian and the incredible coverage of Hurricane Ian. I mean, obviously, we had the Weather Channel and networks doing that. But the really striking video are the people who are in the hurricane who are experiencing it. And that really gives the public an understanding of what's going on. So there is, a, I think, a very powerful argument that the freedom of the press now really extends to a functionality of the press as opposed to an institutionality of the press, meaning you don't need to have a vest that says press or a card that constitutes a press pass in order to essentially be in the position to inform the public. And of course, we saw in the killing of George Floyd how critical the video evidence was there. And I don't believe the people who took the videos were formally journalists. I, I think it was people that were just standing around there. Exactly. Exactly. And, and of course, you know, there are multiple examples, but there are certainly dramatic ones like that, which illustrate the, the power of what I call citizen journalists, even though these individuals don't consider themselves journalists. They are essentially eyewitnesses. And now they have a technology that they can capture their eyewitness perceptions. And ultimately, that, those videos can be used for evidence and you know become part of the criminal justice system. So I, I, I think that's what's going on here. Certainly, the police don't want to essentially have a situation, you know, particularly when you have a, a live event where you have hundreds of people pulling out their phones and potentially interfering. Obviously, there is the ability to set up barriers. And I think the Arizona law has some limits in terms of how far away you need to be. But at the end of the day, again, technology may trump any of those laws, meaning that even if you're 50 feet away, if you have a reasonably good smartphone, you have the capability to zoom in so it looks like you are very close. Of course, we have drone technology where you don't even need to be physically on the ground. You could be shooting from hundreds of feet in the air with zoom lenses. And of course, now drone technology is no longer just a technology of military. A lot of people can buy a drone on Amazon for relatively inexpensive uh, cost. And so we will have a new version of citizen journalism, not just through smartphones, but also through drones. 
Again, the book is called The First Amendment Lives On, Conversations Commemorating Q. Hefner's Legacy of Enduring Free Speech and Free Press Values. Stuart Bartman, thank you so much for joining me on Office Hours. Thanks so much, Dora. I had a great talk. That's it for this edition of Office Hours. I'm your host and executive producer, Tamara Supper. The audio producer and the composer is Nat Wiener. We'd love to hear what you think about this episode. Write to us at letters at cafe.com. Thank you.